You are listening to Danvers Audio, a podcast by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I'm Colin Smothers, your host and executive director of CBMW. Abigail Dodds is a wife and mother of five children. She writes and teaches Bible studies for the women at Bethlehem Baptist Church, where her husband, Tom, serves as an elder. She contributes to DesiringGod.org and blogs at her personal site, HopeAndStay.com. Her first book, published with Crossway at the beginning of this year, is titled, Atypical Woman, Free, Whole, and Called in Christ. It's also the topic of today's podcast. Abigail Dodds, welcome to Danvers Audio. Abigail, in your new book, A Typical Woman, you've written about womanhood, and it's something that you confess in the introduction that you never intended to write about. Uh, Also in the introduction, you uh, note the challenge of writing on a topic that has been so, quote, fixated on, maligned, idolized, marginalized, criticized, and generally made a mess of. But still, you chose to to make this your first book on the topic of womanhood. Why is that? Well, I guess I must just be a glutton for punishment or something. I'm not not totally sure. I think we write about what we see a need for and— when we want to serve the church and we want to serve Christ, it's, I think it's right and good to be drawn to those areas where we see that there is a need or where we see there have been misunderstandings or where we see, um, we see a, a problem of some sort. And we don't want to write in a way that just is reacting all the time um, or swinging the pendulum from one side to the other, but, um, and that that's why the approach I took was to try and really ground everything in this book in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So those that was the foundation I was trying to lay, but I think writing on womanhood was just a very, in one sense, a very natural thing for me to do. Um, I am a Christian woman, so it's exceedingly relevant for me. Um, it's something that I have had to wrestle through the scriptures on and learn about in my own local community, um, church community. And so it was just extremely relevant. And I saw maybe small errors or some some more significant errors. I, I saw how they would work out practically in the church and how they were not helpful. They were, even if they were unintentional, how they could work out in ways that were harmful for how um, women view themselves or how they understand what they were made for. And so it was really just out of a, a genuine desire to help woman, women get their feet on solid ground um, so that they weren't sort of tossed to and fro. As a man reading your book, uh, I am partly an, an outsider reading a book about, about Christian womanhood. Um, but I think, uh, as you mentioned, you do a great job about grounding all that all of your instruction, all of your um, your exegesis, all of the things that you write in this book um, about what it means to do these things in Christ. And uh, so I certainly learned a lot uh, as a man reading a book about about womanhood. But um, just to step back and, and look at the kind of overview of your book, it seems like you, you've broken it up into three parts. The first part um, titled Women Through and Through in Christ, and then the second part Women and All We Do in Christ. And then uh, fearless and free women in Christ, and 
And as I thought about how to summarize your structure, it seems like in that first part, you're really asking the question about uh, what is a woman, sort of sort of the who of Christian mm-hmm. womanhood. And then the second part, uh, what does a woman do or, or the what question? And then that mm-hmm. third, third part, um, how should a woman do it? Um, yeah. Kind of that how question. Is that a fair summary of the structure of your book? Yep, that's exactly right. Um, it was just trying to lay a foundation and then work our way out of that, work our way into the practical living. And then the, like you said, the how we do it or the how we mature in doing those things as full, mature, complete women um, in the third section. So trying to give some more, just some more personal examples and pictures for people to see. Well, I think that that first part in a bygone era uh, would not be controversial. What is a woman or who is woman? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the age that we live in today, uh, that's certainly perhaps the most contested um, aspect of this, at least uh, outside the church. And so uh, just in summary, w- what is a woman? Right. <laughs> well, a woman is someone who has been made by God as a woman. Um, and the, the main evidence that we have for that is, of course, your physical body. That's the most obvious evidence, and, and it's kind of incontrovertible. Um, but it, it's very simple. It's just someone who has been made by God, born as a woman. Um, and so it's a biological reality. And I think, yeah, that is a hard thing to say in this culture, um, because those those definitions are shifting or have shifted significantly. And so even just to say that very obvious fact is going to draw some ire um, in some areas. But I think in the church, what we don't always realize is that some of that thinking has seeped in in unusual ways um, where women have, have never considered or thought about the implications of having a female body. Um, And so we really have embraced a sort of Gnosticism where um, what we think about ourselves and what we feel about ourselves is a more potent reality than what we have been created to be physically. And that's dangerous. And so I just try to hit on that a little bit. That's something that, frankly, I really appreciated about your book. It was the emphasis um, uh, on what theologians might call general revelation uh, mm-hmm. coupled with special revelation, that, that component mm-hmm. of natural law. And it's actually something that, um, that this book shares in common with uh, my last guest, who was Nancy Piercy, wrote the book Love Thy Body, and, and she really uh, hits on that um, sort of worldly strand of Gnosticism that is so prevalent outside the church, but then is certainly making inroads in the church. And it shows up in all, all kinds of ways in the mm. church. Yeah, that is very true. I do think that we, um, because we are people of the book, and that is what we want to be first and foremost, is people of the book. But because of that, we're very suspicious of trying to understand God in any way other than through the book. And I want to be really clear, the book, the Bible, must always be the the final word on everything. And yet, God has revealed himself in another way. 
And that is through everything that he has made. And so, you know, Romans 1 hits on this. But we know more about who God is based on what he has made. And in in a perfect world without sin, what he has made and what he says in his book would be perfectly congruent. They would say the same thing. But because we live in a sinful wor- world, the what God has made sometimes doesn't say what it ought to say um, because sin has broken things. And yet there is still clear messaging from God in the world that he's made. And I think Christians ignore that to their detriment because the world is not ignoring exactly what has been made. They're rejecting it. Um, They're trying to change it and remake it, but they're not ignoring it. And we definitely shouldn't either. We need to be able to look at people struggling with transgenderism, um, with a hatred of their body and a misplaced sense of who they are. We need to be able to look at them and say, you were made this way as a man or a woman. And God calls that very good. Um, that is a hopeful thing to be able to tell someone, um, even if it doesn't feel loving to them, it may not, but it is a good thing that we would be telling them a truthful, good, wonderful thing. And and we need to be able to say it in agreement with God about what he's made. That's a really helpful summary of, of even the Protestant emphasis on, uh, on the primacy of special revelation on the scriptures uh, but also the acknowledgement and the confession that the world that God made um, undergirds and even uh, helps us to make sense of of what God has revealed. And I think we are seeing a, a helpful recovery of that emphasis on natural law and learning from nature and learning mm-hmm. how nature does not contradict the scriptures, but actually helps us to to better understand them um, mm-hmm. and, and vice versa, that we we understand how the world is made. Um, first and foremost, by learning who God is from the scriptures and, and learning what he, what he has made through the scriptures. Yep, very true. On, uh, on page 48 of your book, you talk about this a little bit more, and, and you're talking about um, the issue of design, and you connect this with, with womanhood in a, in a really helpful way, I think. Um, so I just want to read back to you some of, uh, some of your words and then just uh, ask you to, to expand on this. So at the second half of, of page 48, you say, A lasting echo of the Enlightenment, strengthened by modern hubris, tells us that to know our calling, we must look within. Self-knowledge of the inner person is how we discern what we're, what we're made for. And there's an element of truth there. We can't ignore our inner life. Yet if we want to know what we're made for, we need something more fixed and unchanging than our internal selves. We need Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever— special revelation, and we need to observe the bodies he has given us, created through him and for him. And again, that that general revelation. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, this is something that I, I sometimes feel silly talking about because it is exceedingly obvious. And yet I find that whenever I do talk about it, um, People act like I'm saying something new that they haven't heard before. And so it just tells me that there is a gap. There it has there our culture has been blinded and that has come into our into our churches as well, uh, where we have been blinded to something exceedingly obvious. And so why are women made with a womb? Now that is exceedingly obvious. 
And yet, um, when you talk to very young women, maybe women in their 20s, that is an obscure fact to them. Uh, it's almost like they would never have considered that. They, they don't think of their life in terms of what their body is. They think of their life in terms of their ambition, um, in terms of what they like or dislike, how they feel or don't feel, what they think or don't think. And that connection to their body is, is almost gone at times. They, they have no sense of a biological clock. Um, and that's a shame. That is a shame because God has made us a certain way. And it's very difficult to find out in your forties that your body actually does have an impact on, on your life. Whereas in your twenties and thirties, maybe you pushed that aside and now you can't have children or whatever that is. Um, but one way that I have found this really connect to the scripture. So taking what is true about our bodies and then helping it or or allowing it to help us better exegete the text of the scripture is in first Timothy, where the instructions are given um, to women, older women are to teach younger women to work and manage the home. And that rubs against a lot of women the wrong way. And yet when you realize that Every woman's body has been equipped as a home. It has been equipped with a womb um, to make it a home. I think then the instructions make a lot of sense. Um, all the, it, God is not arbitrary. He is not arbitrarily giving us instructions as a way to say, well, you have to do this job and, and isn't that a bummer? No, your, your body as a woman is equipped to do something that men's bodies cannot do. And it is essential for the survival of the human race. It's essential for the going forward of the gospel from generation to generation. And so I just think understanding that is comforting and helpful and that God calls it all very good. I just find it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, that um, that acknowledgement, that uh, assessment of of the of the womanly body is certainly something that is um, that is directly contrary. In fact, one one of the vices of our of our age today is the way that we so negatively treat um, the woman's body. On the next mm-hmm. page, on page forty nine, you talk about um, you say the world loves women's body for hedonistic, autonomous uses like porn and promotion but hates women's bodies when they do the very things they were made to do, like bringing helpless children into the world and give of themselves to keep them alive. And then you, you give this metaphor, and I think it's great, about um, you talk about what a hammer is made for. A hammer has a, has a particular design. It was designed for a purpose, um, and it's meant to, to hammer nails. But the equivalent to what we do with women's bodies today uh, is like if we took that hammer and and the example you give is is so uh, poignant, I think. And instead of using it to hammer nails, you you paint it and you you hang it on the wall and, and look at it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. That is that is very much I think how women's bodies are treated. You know, and the the one thing that I would just add as a caveat to this, and I I say it in the book, but it's worth saying here. And maybe you're going to get to this, but I'll go ahead and start us down that path. Is just that there are a lot of women who do sense um, 
sense that their bodies were made to bear children and they can't for some reason or another, or maybe they aren't married. Um, and so there's a huge grief there. Um, it, it may be painful. And yet I think we actually legitimize their pain by acknowledging that that's a real thing that our bodies were made for. And it's legitimate to feel real deep grief and sorrow over that. And it's, it is a loss and it is something to grieve over. And yet we can still point each other to the hope of the gospel and to the spiritual family that we're a part of. And there are zero barren women in God's family, no barren women in God's family because of the spiritual children and the, um, the way that he folds us into his body in such a way in such a way that even if the physical realities are hindered, the truer reality is not. And so I just want to add that in there for any woman who's listening and saying, well, it sounds like I'm not a real woman since I don't have children or can't have children. And I just want to say so clearly to you, no, that's not true. And and don't hear me saying that. Um, Hear me saying that having a womb and, and bearing children is a good thing. And, and if you can't do it, there, there may be real legitimate grief there. And yet you are so needed in Christ's body still. Um, and there are bigger, better spiritual realities that you have in full. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really important. And as, as you mentioned, um, you get to that in, in part two, that there are, mm-hmm. um, there are single women. There are uh, childless women, and and those are women nonetheless in Christ, and and still have a particular calling as women in Christ. And uh, I really appreciate that emphasis. and And I do want to get there. Um, one one other question before we move on to part two, um, on mm-hmm. part one, is this definition of womanhood. Uh, clearly, you know the world is confused about about what a woman is. Um, but I think, as you mentioned in the introduction and even in the first few chapters of your book, there's some confusion within the church um, as to what a woman is. And um, I just want to read a, a, a few definitions of womanhood uh, that have been used and, and some have appreciated um, in the past. And I just want you to maybe interact with, with how your uh, conception of womanhood is similar or distinct from, from these. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the first definition comes from John Piper and Wayne Grudem's book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Uh, this is a book that was edited and, uh, and put together um, by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Um, but it's a, it's a definition that has, has come under some scrutiny even in recent uh, years. And what they write is, quote, at the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm receive and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships, end quote. So that, that's one definition. And then uh, I want to offer one more definition, uh, and this comes from Jay Budaszewski's book, uh, Meaning of Sex, or On the Meaning of Sex. And he, uh, he writes that sort of the, the sine qua non of womanhood or femininity has to do with potentiality for motherhood. And so what he writes is, uh, quote, we can say that a woman is a human being of that sex whose members are potentially mothers, 
And he goes on to write, the women's potentiality for motherhood ties all her qualities together and makes sense of her contrast with men. And so with the caveats in place that you just mentioned that not all women are mothers, um, what do you make of those definitions and, and how do your definition or how does your definition of of womanhood fit with that or maybe um, help to correct some of the the problems with those definitions? I think I am trying to say something much more basic. Um, I'm not trying to say as much. I'm simply trying to say that to be a woman is to be made by God as a woman. Hmm. And so without maybe specifically interacting with those uh, I will just say this, um, godly womanhood looks a certain way and yet an ungodly woman is still a woman. And so this is where I think we can get into just a little bit of trouble. Um, and I, I confess that I have done this and, and I, I understand the impulse behind talking this way. And I don't think it's necessarily a wrong impulse, but I think in, in the culture we're in now, it may be an unhelpful one. And that is to talk about real women or true women. Um, and what we mean by it is uh, maybe mature women or godly women, holy women, um, women who are growing in their Christ-likeness. So that's a good thing. We want women to do that. Um, but when we talk about if you behave this way, then you will be a real woman. Um, I just think it plays into a certain kind of cultural thinking that says what we are is based on what we do. And I don't think that's true. So I would feel comfortable saying to someone if they're transgender um, and they consider themselves a woman and their physical body is male, I would, I would say they are a man. And I don't base that on what they do or how they feel or what they should be. I just base it on what they are, what they have been made to be. And so that's how I think of male and female. Um, it's a reality. It's fixed. Um, and, and there are things that will flow out of that that are distinct between men and women. And then there are things that will flow out of that will, that will be very similar between men and women. Um, I, I just like to start at more of a ground level, I think. I think that's a really helpful um, way to summarize that. And and I think that that is partly what Budaszewski is getting at in that potentiality language. And I think in the same way that um, the person who's a male that thinks, you know, he's a woman, uh, while he may think he has the potentiality for motherhood, there's no ontological potentiality for motherhood. And the fact that his body was not designed to be a mother, uh, to, carry mm -hmm. a, to carry a human. And, and again, I think that um, the way that that you talk about womanhood in your book, uh, I feel like it charts a really uh, even-keeled, um, sort of right down the middle uh, definition of, of womanhood. That's that's I think really really helpful. 
Yeah, and, I think one one other thing, if I could add this quickly about how, so we're talking about womanhood, and I think what we mean is a Christian woman. And so how I would define a Christian woman, I probably would not start in Genesis. I would start with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I don't think we make good sense of Genesis without that. Um, All things were made through Christ and for Christ. And if there is nothing about Christ in the definition of a Christian woman, I do think we've missed it. And, And this is the angst or the tension that I have maybe felt on one side is not tethering womanhood to Christ. Women, Christian women don't exist apart from Christ. As a matter of fact, non-Christian women don't exist apart from Christ. All things were made through Christ and for Christ. And so I, I struggle with anything that does not tether me to the person and work of Jesus Christ. I feel very hopeless without that. No, that's, that's really helpful. And I think it gets even to the title of your book, that when we talk about typicality or what is typical of a woman, um, we, we start to potentially get into unhelpful stereotypes and, um, and then even alienate people that don't fit into those stereotypes that nonetheless are women, and not only yes. women, but Christian women. And yes. so that, that is the, the thesis, uh, if you will, of your book. And, and that pushing back, I think, um, is very, very helpful that what you're writing about here is a Christian woman. And uh, one of the sections, you know, titles of your, of your book here is Anything But Typical. And I just want to mm-hmm. uh, read, read for you uh, or read for our, our listeners here uh, what you say here. You write, the goal of a Christian woman isn't to be typical, especially if what typical means is an overly made up, hyper feminine, wilts at the first sign of hard work, check brain at the door type of woman. Where is that in the Bible? Thankfully, fainting couches and southern bells aren't mentioned either. Rather, we live our life in Christ and pursue holiness, and that is anything but typical. Yes. Uh, that is very much a part of why I I wrote this book, is that um, one of the unintended consequences, I think, of of some of how we have formulated some of these things, and I include myself in in those formulations. Um, And so just one of the ways that I'm continuing to try and learn and, and grow and mature in this area is just to realize that um, women are given extremely different circumstances in life from the Lord. And they have to learn how to walk through life in the circumstances He's given them, which may be very different than the circumstances He's given me or what we would consider the ideal. And when we only talk about the ideal— as though what is ideal is for everything in your life to go as planned and married at this age, kids at this age, serving in the church in this way. When we, when we talk about that as the ideal, we're getting our ideals wrong. The ideal is for the woman to be able to walk through absolutely any circumstance as a holy woman of God. 
a woman who is free from the bondage of sin. And so that's the ideal that we want to hold up as a Christian woman, um, not a circumstance. And so uh, that is so much of what I wanted to to hit on. And, and really, I think it's so hopeful to tell women that um, because they are then free to say, I've been given this circumstance. It's a really hard one. It's not what my sister was given. And yet I have Christ, which means he's put down the steps of obedience for me. And so I can walk through this really hard circumstance and follow Christ and, and trust that at the end of it, he will form and shape me into a Christian woman, his daughter. Hmm. That's really helpful. And I think it's, it's a good pivot into, into part two, where um, in part one, you, you've talked about what is a, a Christian woman. And in part two, you talk about uh, what is it that a Christian woman does or, or is called to. And, and here we do get into the particularities that are unique to and distinct um, in womanhood and cr- even Christian womanhood uh, that is uh, different from Christian manhood or even just manhood. For instance, you write about uh, single women, um, and a single woman is going to be different from a single man in the way that she interacts in the church, in the way that she is able to disciple and love uh, the other women in the church and, and serve the church in her particular capacities uh, and her, her particular um, just being as a, as a woman. And the same way um, women are, are called to mothering, uh, some women are called to mothering in a way that a man cannot be called to to mothering at all. Um, so, so there are particularities uh, when it comes to Christian womanhood. Um, what, what is it that you're trying to do with part two? Yeah, I'm just trying to flesh out those circumstances that we're called to in life. And, you know, I probably could have had <laughs> six or seven or ten more chapters in that section. Um but I tried to hit some of the what I thought might be the most familiar ones for women um, and just allow women to see themselves walking with Christ in these different circumstances, these different scenarios, these different areas, and just to show that in every area or any area that God puts us in, we're His and we're Christian women. Um, so that's the goal. I thought it was really helpful how you talked about um, oftentimes when we talk about singleness and singlehood in the church, uh, we talk about it in ways that families can adopt singles into the life of the family and um, and sort of be brought into into familial life that way. And obviously that's a, a component and a real need um, mm-hmm. in the church. But I thought it was um, really interesting how you talked about how in your own life you have been discipled and mentored uh, by single women yourself, yourself a, a married woman um, with children, and being able to learn from and grow under the discipling care of a single woman. Absolutely. I mean, God gives His Spirit and His wisdom to His people. And so to cut ourselves off from the wisdom that He's given our sisters just because they don't have the same circumstances as us is so foolish. It is so, so foolish. And and it really, again, it goes along with our culture where in the world, unless you've experienced what I've experienced, you have no right to speak to me about anything. 
Um, and so unless you are just like me and we have this same hard thing that we've walked through, nobody can, nobody can speak to me unless they are down with the struggle, whatever that struggle is. Um, and that's a, that's a foolish mistake. Um, and so, yeah, I would just encourage women to learn from people who are not like you <laughs> learn from people who are single. Do you, I mean, single people have had parents, <laughs> single people have observed parents and, and sometimes not being in the circumstance gives you much clearer eyes to see what's going right and what's going wrong as hard as that may be to hear. Um, sometimes they have very clear insights into something that you may be struggling with as a parent um, precisely because they aren't in the midst of it. And so we need to be the body of Christ and, and learn from each other. In the next chapter, you talk uh, to married women. And uh, one of the things you address is the, what you call the elephant in the room, um, the S word, submission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it was really helpful how you framed uh, that discussion just in terms of uh, the, the Christian life is a life of submission. Uh, we all live our lives um, as men and women under authority. Um, first and foremost, that authority uh, coming from our Father, our Heavenly Father, and uh, the, the Lordship of, of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so all, the Christian life, frankly, is a, is a life of submission and a call to, mm-hmm. to submit not only to uh, God, our authority, but even the human authorities that he's put in our place for our good. Um, mm-hmm. You talk about the authority of church elders and, and even the authority of, of the one another's, um, our brothers and sisters in the church. Mm-hmm. So with all that uh, said... Talk to us about uh, about submission and marriage. Talk. To, I think I think the way you discuss it is really helpful, even with the metaphor of of the sunflower. Um, how is it that we can make this a, a a beautiful picture and a picture to be embraced as good for us, um, and not something that we kind of uh, sprint past as as we're in the scriptures? Mm-hmm. Well, it is just helpful to consider what the beauty is and what the what the picture of submission is is meant to be so that we can get an idea of what we're what we're after and the picture of submission is meant to reflect Christ and his church and so we want to we want to see what we're supposed to be like and so i use the metaphor of a sunflower simply because these giant sunflowers can turn in the air to follow the sun's position in the sky. And it's just a really remarkable thing if you're a gardener, if you're around a sunflower, to watch it face one direction at one part of the day and then another direction in another part of the day. And no one would say about that sunflower, oh, how sad, (laughs) like how pathetic that it's turning its head toward the sun. You know, no, that's not pathetic. It's for its own good. Um, It turns its head so that it can receive the warmth, the the all that it needs from the sun. Um, and I, and of course, and this, again, I feel like I have to say this because people take metaphors really weird and they get really bent out of shape about metaphors sometimes. So I just want to be clear that no, your husband is not the sun. Um, he is not a flaming ball of gas in the sky. Um, that's not 
what he is and nor can he provide you all the spiritual care and nourishment that you need as though he is a mediator between you and God. You belong to Christ and Christ is where your life is. And yet God has given you a husband to be like the warmth of the sun in your life, to um, provide and to lead in ways that are for your good. And to refuse that is, it's a, it's a foolish way of reading the scriptures. In my opinion, I say that, I try to say that with humility, but I would just, I just want women to see that to refuse something that's for your good, to refuse what is ultimately a kindness from the Lord, um, let's not be like that. It's so short-sighted. Um, and I, I get that not every woman is married to a man like that. Um, and that's a reality. And so, and that is why we must have our feet firmly on the solid rock of Christ. That is why we must not think of our husbands as somehow a mediator between us and Christ where we don't have a direct relationship with the Lord. We, we must not think that way. Um, we must be more stable and secure than, than that because we can't find our stability and our security in a husband. It must be in Christ. And so I acknowledge that not every marriage is like that, but I still think it's helpful for all of us to acknowledge that that's what it's supposed to be like. In the next uh, couple chapters, you, you didn't you didn't avoid any landmines, did you? <laughs> uh, I guess not. <laughs> chapter chapter eleven, uh, titled "Working Women," uh, you just kind of go right at it and uh, and address the question about women working inside and outside the home. And I think, again, the way that you frame the discussion is uh, is really helpful. And in our own personal experience, it's it's funny. My wife she stays at home with our four young children, uh, that, who are all seven and under. And uh, sometimes the question comes, um, "Do you work?" And uh, and my <laughs> wife can't help but just smile, uh, and because oftentimes what's behind that question is, "Do you do you have a job outside the home? Um, right. do, do you earn a, a paycheck?" Um, yeah. But as you point out in the book, uh, women, uh, stay-at-home moms, moms that work outside the home, all are working. All all are. Um, meeting that, that mandate to, uh, to, um, to have dominion over the, mm-hmm. uh, over the earth. And, and they are working regardless of, of whether or not you're receiving a paycheck. Mm-hmm. But, but you do, do get to the question about, um, women working outside the home and, and the question of priorities. I just want to read something on, on page 98. You write, God's word is not silent in regard to the priorities that women in particular should have. We are made as helpers, co-workers, with the home as a priority and as the place of industry, hospitality, and respite. Can you help us uh, think through that and unpack that a little bit more? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, our, our society has made working at home a fairly difficult prospect, um, not only because it's really hard to be industrious in a way that... Um, contributes at home, um, but also because the home has become so isolated. Um, and so I just want to acknowledge that up front that, um, at least 
where I am. And I'm not sure if it's different if you live in a city or if it's, I live kind of in a suburb. Um, maybe it's different in a, in a city, maybe it's different in, in certain communities, but what I have observed by and large among stay at home moms, um, and women who have made the home their priority is that the home has become extremely isolated. And so we have not made it easy to do this. And yet it is still what the Bible says ought to be our priority. And it's not altogether hard to put together why. Um, I mentioned earlier the connection of our bodies being the home and the idea of women working at home being kind of an extension of that. It, it, it shouldn't be a mystery to us why our young kids always come to mom to ask for food. <laughs> like I, I remember thinking when our kids were especially young and, and Tom and I would both be there with them and they would always come to me to ask for food and I would be worn out and tired and wanting a break or whatever it is. And I would have this thought, well, couldn't you ask your dad? He's right there. Um, and they never would. And it wasn't like anyone had colluded to tell them, hey, only ask your mom. And it wasn't like Tom had never gotten them food. He certainly had. But of course, there's going to be this natural connection of mom with the place of home, the place of food, <laughs> um, all those different things. And I think that centering that I'm trying, I'm struggling to come up with the appropriate words, but that, um, that sort of base home base, this place where we know is stable and secure, where we know, um, there is safety and, and nurture and warmth, all those things. Um, it's essential for how, how humans are able to, grow and become stable people, it's just essential for humanity to have that. Um, I think G.K. Chesterton said something like, there must be in the center of every, of every society or of every culture, one person who doesn't give their best, but gives their all. So he, he basically hits on this idea of women in the home are jack of all trades in one sense. And I, I wouldn't go so far to say master of none, but they are called upon to do a vast number of things to care for and grow humanity. Um, and they aren't able to go deep on one topic and focus the way a man is because they are required for the nurture and care of small children. If the mother doesn't do it, someone else has to. Um, it, it's not optional. Children must be cared for. They must be tended. They're utterly dependent. And so those are just realities that we need to acknowledge. Um, children need us, um, and that's a good thing. Um, and the home is the place where those needs are best met. I, again, I recognize that this is not always possible in every circumstance that we're given. Every life circumstance doesn't allow for the ideal. Um, and so we want to be careful and generous with people who are just walking through something hard, that there's no way around. Um, and yet we also want to support and encourage this place called the home that has become kind of a hard place because it's not valued 
um, in our culture. And so it's become very isolated and and not very industrious, honestly. Um, but the more we can push back against that, the better. Really well said. In your final section in part three, titled Fearless and Free Women in Christ, um, it seems like what you're what you're getting after here is how we can do these things, uh, the things that we're called to, specifically what the things that women are called to, and how can we do these things in Christ and cultivating uh, the fruit of the Spirit, cultivating um, Christian virtue. And mm-hmm. the, the titles of your chapters, Strong and Weak Women, Dependent Women, Afflicted Women, Free Women, and the Infinite Christ and Finite Women. Uh, specifically as a man reading this book, um, I felt like I could just, in, in a lot of your advice, uh, plug in uh, Christian for, for all those places where you mentioned women, strong and weak Christians, dependent mm-hmm. Christians, mm-hmm. afflicted Christians, free Christians, the infinite Christ and the infinite Christians. And I just yeah. want to say I, I was really helped by, by the way that, um, that we're meant to see, uh, as you point out, dependency as not a negative, but, but as, a, as a baked in reality of, of life. Um, we're, we're meant to see a, affliction um, and suffering as something that God uses uh, to mature us in Christ, and 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 we're and we're meant to do these things um, for for His glory. Uh, do you want to say anything more about about part three and what you were trying to to accomplish in that section? Um, I just think when the rubber hits the road in a lot of women's life, um, it's easy to think that because we aren't in the ideal circumstance, that somehow God's plan has gone awry when really that hard circumstance is his best plan to make us into more like his son. And so if we can understand that when things go awry, when the hard things come, when nothing has gone to plan, it is in that moment when Christ is doing his greatest work in you. And understanding that, realizing that, not stiff-arming the blessing of Christ in that is is absolutely essential for us to become mature Christian women. And ultimately, my hope and my goal and my prayer and my heart's desire is just to see more Christian women secure in what they've been made to be and secure in moving through their life without angst of how they were made, of the circumstances God has put them in, all those things that we don't have control over. Um, I would love to see more Christian women able to receive the blessing of Christ in the midst of all the things that they can't control. (laughs) Hmm. Abigail, I greatly enjoyed reading your book. I've already recommended it um, to many women in, in my life, and uh, and I'm going to continue to do so. There are so many great stories, so many great anecdotes, um, quotes. You've just really uh, put together in this book, A Typical Woman, a great resource for the church at large and uh, and for women, Christian women in particular. So I just want to say thank you so much for your efforts uh, in writing this book and um, and thank you for helping us think through these things. Well, thank you for allowing me the just the privilege of serving, um, serving the church and serving your listeners. Um, and I'm just praying that Christ is, is honored and glorified. 
Resources like Danvers Audio are made possible by the financial support of our individual and church partners. If you or someone you know has benefited from the ministry of CBMW, please consider becoming a partner today by visiting cbmw.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening to Danvers Audio.